Hi, my name's Craig Scarson, and welcome to the Treatment-Free Beekeeping Podcast. start out as usual with how you got started in beekeeping and where you are and what you want to do um well how i got started was i was just on a kind of a family trip and we happened upon to like a little a maker's fair so it had a whole bunch of people doing like 3d printing and all all sorts of stuff like that and then uh there was you know a little beekeeping booth and i ended up talking with them and then I don't know, my my interest kind of held out over a few months because I, I tend to do that a lot where I'll I'll get interested in one thing and I'll be really interested in it for about a month and then I'll forget it. So I figured, no, 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 I should I should probably wait and the interest held. So I started getting a little bit more into it and I started doing, uh, yeah, I, I started making steps towards getting everything set up before... I totally knew everything, which kind of ended up being a bit of a problem. But I've been trying to trying to recover from that. <laughs> How was it a problem? Um, well, I had started doing some research, and then I found out that a lot of a lot of packages, like just packages, not not even nukes, um, they were selling like the pre-orders were selling out, and you're on a waiting list starting in I think December. You were already on a waiting list, so mm-hmm. I, I just called them up. I said, "Yeah, yeah, give me, give me one package." <laughs> and then, as I did more research, I'm like, "Oh, geez, I really should have gotten more than just one." <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so then, so I got the one, and then I was, uh, well, I was just gonna try and do do the best I could with that. And then I happened upon an ad on Kijiji where there was someone that was. Um, selling selling a whole hive hive of bees because they they had expanded their operation a little a little quicker than they meant to and they're just selling it at a deal. So I drove I think four hours to to go get those or four hours each way to to go get those just so I had something. And then so far, actually last week I I split that hive into kind of a a mock walkaway split or my attempt at one anyways. Uh-huh. So I'm up to I'm gonna say two and a half. I've got two that have queens and that that little nuke that I've that I made off the full hive. I'm trying to trying to turn into a third one and maybe get up to four hives this year. <laughs> so that's that that's what I mean by kind of a mistake is just not having done my you know the full amount of research before i started getting getting everything together mm-hmm. so you did okay uh, though i think yeah well the uh the, the big kicker i think is going to be to see if this walkway well i i called a walkway what i did was i just took um a few frames of kind of eggs and uh capped brood and then honey and pollen and put them from that hive and then just move them over to a nuke box. And I'm hoping it'll 
you know they'll they'll try and raise a queen off that. Um, they should. No yeah. Reason why they shouldn't? I mean, it's what? not it's not ne- it's not guaranteed to succeed, but they'll try. Yeah. Well, and I, I guess if if it doesn't work, then I can always just merge them back in with the uh, with the original hive. I'm, I would imagine. That's true. Um. But yeah, I guess perfect perfect world which i guess it kind of transports me into one of my questions somewhere along the line there is you know they they start a couple uh, emergency queens on a couple frames and then i'm able to turn that into another nuke box and then i i'm able to get up to four yes you can do that do you have another nuke box prepared yep all right so let's see you put them in how long ago how long ago did you make the split? Jeez, oh, let's see. On the 11th is when I did it. So about four days ago there. All right. So that was Friday? Thursday? Thursday. Thursday? Yeah. Okay. Um, if my memory serves me correctly, um, by this Thursday, upcoming Thursday, for listeners, this is Monday when we're taping this. <laughs> uh, it's probably not yeah. going to be out on a Monday, but this is Monday. Anyway, so... On Thursday, you should have your queen cells capped, um, and then you'll be able to split that again, and then add some more brood from your existing hive, so that you know you'll you'll keep um, keep them built up for this. Yeah, and then you can have another nuke, and then that queen will hatch out, and you'll be ready to go. Okay, yeah. So that, that that was something I was gonna ask you about too. Was because um, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff I've been reading on on when you can move these queens around was talking about how you you know, want to wait till till the last possible moment to actually split them because um, they were talking about the those queen cells being pretty sensitive to to actually move. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I wasn't too too sure. So I, I'd I'd be able to move them once they're capped. You figure. Uh, let's see. I'm checking my queen rearing, queen rearing calendar here, which you can find on my website on one of the queen, one of the two queen pages. It's there somewhere. Yeah. Download it. Let's see. So if we input our, uh, on here, it's the date of graft. It's, it's the day when, when the, the bees go queenless and start building cells. So that was Thursday. Today's Monday. Uh, according to Michael Bush's version, the queen cells should be capped today. Uh, according to another version, they should be capped tomorrow. And then they recommend you don't move them for several days. And so the optimum day to move them would be Saturday. Saturday, if it's warm, Sunday would be fine. Monday should also be okay but starting to push it so saturday oh. or sunday is when you want oh, okay. to split them up again oh that's ideal you know nice nice weekend <laughs> so monday if it's warm which you're up in canada so it's probably not too warm uh well, if, it's, if you're in I, florida I guess... they should be hatching monday okay if they're uh, somewhere else they'll probably be hatching tuesday and if it's especially cool they might hatch wednesday so but you can on any time this weekend should be a great time to go ahead and split them add is it a five frame nuke 
All right, so you could take two of one, two into one, and and the other three into the other, and then fill in those extra five frames with five more frames from your existing hive. Okay, and for those uh, those existing frames, would you probably go with a capped brood, or would you do kind of a brood and honey? Or I would recommend at least one, maybe two frames of honey be in both nukes. Because they're they're not going to have a huge field force, so they're not going to be bringing in much honey. So you're going to want to give them, you know, just a little bit of of storage so that they have so they can get started. Because depending on who you talk to, um, making a new bee costs approximately one cell of honey and one cell of uh, pollen. So hmm. you you want them to have a good start. So one or two one or two frames of of honey and or pollen, and then three frames of brood in each is what you want, probably. Okay. Now, I, I guess on, on that whole note, if if when I made the split, like if... Um, will a hive, if it's got too many nurse bees, will they prematurely become foragers? Yes, they yeah. will... In in a case of an emergency situation like that, if there's a lot of nurse bees, some of them will become foragers, most likely the older ones. And yep. if if there's a lot of foragers and not enough nurse bees, some of the foragers will revert to being nurse bees. So they will generally handle their business. Okay. And I assume that it's a similar kind of effect of if, if say, that, that nuke was, you know, they say they had an all right amount of, of nurse bees, but they were starting to run low on some of their food stores, would they, you know, would some of them kind of convert to foragers just to try and try and save themselves or would they probably just starve themselves out? They shouldn't starve. They should, they should adjust their division of labor to, to make sure that they're bringing in, they're always trying to bring in something especially if there are blooms available. Yeah. Yeah, cuz so far what I've seen since I since I made that split is I've seen very little outside activity. Like I, I opened up the top um I can't remember if it was I think it was last night just cuz I hadn't seen any bees coming in or, in or out in on days that were you know, some you know, nice enough where the the other two hives were active. I've seen no activity coming in and out, but I open it up and they, you know, I can see they're they're they look busy. <laughs> yeah, and what's going on there is you've most, if not all, of the forager bees who were part of those frames that you stuck in there are going to end up back in the original hive. Yeah. And so it's actually even a good idea, good practice to take some bees, some nurse bees or whatever bees are on the frames in the old hive and shake them into the new hive occasionally just to make sure that their population stays up. Okay. Okay, yeah, that that sounds like it makes sense. But if there if there's enough bees to keep everything under control and they have some honey in there and they're not starving, they should be fine. I mean, you are going to have you should have some bees hatching out occasionally, keeping the keeping the population up a little bit. But when you make a small split like that, it can be helpful to shake some extra bees in there 
so that they don't run out of bees. They might, you don't want them to get chilled at night. Um, make sure they have enough to, to get that new hive a good step forward in the process of, of becoming a new hive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It makes sense rather than, than them trying to play catch up and struggling there. Right. Um, so. Sort of like the it takes bees to make bees, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I was going to ask you, I'll, I'll try and stay, well, you know, I've already been bouncing around a bit, but I'll, I'll ask you a little bit about queen excluders and uh well i guess do you use them much i wouldn't um, i would guess not a whole lot under normal under normal circumstances no i don't use them i use i may i have pretty large hives and so um the brood nest generally stays toward the bottom of the hive and the honey's generally stored toward the top of the hive and so when yep. i get around to harvesting I go through the hive. I see where everything is. I make sure to leave them some honey so that they won't get starved or if anything should happen, they've got got reasonable amount of storage. And instead of just trying to take a, a, you know, take a box off the top or however you want to look at it, I go through and I, I take the frames out individually and move them into a new, you know, I've got an empty box sitting there. So I, so I don't, don't have to lift that whole box off the hive. I try to put one frame in at a time. I brush the bee, pull out the frame. If the frame is completely capped, uh, doesn't have any brood on it, except for if there's, if there's a little bit of drone brood, which happens sometimes, I'll just take that. Cause I don't mind, you know, junking that that doesn't hurt anything. Um, but I take it frame by frame so that even if, you know, there is two frames of brood or something in the middle of the honey, I can just leave that behind. Yeah. Okay. I do use yeah, queen mean, excluders for queen rearing, but that's a different subject. Yeah. Okay. You know, I've, I've, I've I think I've listened to all, all your podcasts. I think I've, you know, gone gone once and a half times through. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. I'm. Well, I'm always trying to. Well, I'm. I'm on the road quite a bit, so I. I end up listening to to a, a lot of podcasts. So. Nice. I started in with uh, audiobooks. Yeah, yeah. No, I've I've, I've done my fair share of those too. <laughs> so, um, so, so have you ever tried doing like a? Uh, well, I'm, I'm guessing it's not a regular practice, anyways. Have you ever tried doing a a, a double queen hive? I've I've heard about people doing that with uh, with queen excluders. I haven't tried to do like an official double queen hive. I have in the course of regular inspections discovered a hive that had two queens, mother and huh. daughter that were together. However, the mother was definitely tired by that point. Yeah. Um so what what happened was there was a supersedure and they were replacing the old queen and they just didn't get rid of her. And so the new queen and the old queen were laying in the same hive. And so I thought this is a great opportunity. I'll just split the hive again, put one <laughs> queen in each, and we'll be good to go. And the bees, again, immediately superseded the older queen. And that time they finished the job. Oh, okay. Hmm. Ah, I guess it's a, 
It's a nice way to make a second queen. <laughs> but no, I have not done a, a two queen hive. And it, it seems kind of intuitive. I don't know if this is correct. This is totally um, speculation. But I would imagine that a two queen hive would be not quite as productive as two separate productive hives. I don't know exactly. I've heard that they can make amazing amounts of honey, but I'm not sure if it would be worth the management headache. Well, I I, I agree with you there. I, I I've seen it. I'm just kind of I'm kind of curious. It it looks like an interesting idea, but. Like you said, then it also you're also kind of hedging your bets when it comes to you know when when you're going to winter them too because now all of a sudden rather than having two hives and it's just it seems goofy because I would also imagine that a lot of the brood or a lot of the the cluster would want to stay in one area but they might not necessarily want to leave the queen and it I feel yeah. like you'd end up with a lot of dead bees. Yeah, I I'm not familiar with anybody who's actually succeeded in overwintering a double queen hive. I've only I've only heard of them being made up for special uh production situations. Oh, okay. Um so I guess actually on the the note of the queen excluder and your queen castle, uh, this is was just a little thing I was thinking of. I don't know if it would work or if you had extra resources if you'd figured it'd be a worthwhile experiment, but you know how you separate your uh, um, your queen castle by boards. Would wouldn't make sense to try separating that with queen excluders so that the whole like everything's working together except you are still keeping the queens separate on the inside of the hive. I don't think that would work because when you have a double queen hive or more, you need to have a double queen excluder so that those queens can't get to each other at all. Because if there's a, just a single queen excluder, the queens can fight through the queen excluder, like like two people oh, okay. fighting through the, the bars of a jail cell. They can still, you know, touch each other. And um, from, yep, what I, from what I heard, it won't work. Hmm. Okay, yeah, that uh, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't even think about that part of it. Which I get, I guess it's still possible in... In a in a queen yeah. castle, but you're running out of space, having to have two queen excluders in several different well, places. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that 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 makes sense. Might be a fun experiment, though. <laughs> well, you know, I guess perfect world if you you had queens that happen to get along, and maybe, but <laughs> probably doubtful. I've always wondered if you could do something to selectively breed a genetic line of bees so that they tended to have more than one queen per hive more often. I mean, I've heard of certain strains of bees that, um, like D. Lesby's bees, uh, had this trait called, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's something like thelotoki or thelotoki or something like that. And the idea is that when you have a queenless hive, Instead of laying workers just laying the hive full of drones, what they will actually do is instead of laying an unfertilized egg to make a drone, they will lay an egg that is a clone of their own DNA. 
so that this egg can be raised into a new queen, even though it was laid by uh, an unfertilized laying worker. Huh. But there, there has in the in the beekeeping literature, there's not a lot of information about that. And as far as I know, only D. Lesby has reported that sort of activity. Yeah, as I say, I've I've never heard of that. I I haven't actually gone through a lot of her, or well, I I don't think any of her work yet. I know that's that's one of those things that are it's on the on the list to go through at some point. But and I have heard stories also of egg thieving that a a queenless hive might steal an egg from another hive and build a new queen out of it. But that doesn't make a whole lot of sense at, on, a, on a selective pressure level. That doesn't make any sense because there's nothing to select for the bee's ability to do that because their genes are not passed on. It's, yeah. It's the genes from the other hive that are passed on. So that's a that's a rumor. It's it's really hard to prove those sorts of things because well, yeah, even exactly. if they existed, they would be extremely rare. Well, and to actually catch them doing that, like, yeah, you'd, you'd have to go in at the right moment, prove that there's no, that it's all, you know, laying workers or there's no queen and then watch for it. And that it's, yeah, that'd be a really hard one to actually watch for. I think... As, you know, Occam's razor wise, probably the simplest explanation for something like that is a virgin queen who took an excessively long time to mate and start laying. So the hive might appear to be queenless for even a month or more. Yeah, no, I, I, I can see that being the case. And then everyone's just, oh, well, this this must be what it is. <laughs> so. Hmm. Uh, let's see. So I guess for storing, uh, it, it might seem. Well, I'm just kind of jumping away from the the queen excluders and that now. Sure, is, go ahead. Uh, um, I'm, I'm trying to group my group my stuff so it's trying to so I'm not bouncing back to the same thing. <laughs> um, do you ever store ever store any frames of honey or pollen? Like if you you know, because they they grab what they need, and you maybe think that okay, yeah, maybe I can maybe I can grab this one, but then all of a sudden they don't end; up, they're not able to to grab as much later on as you thought they would. So you end up giving some back. Do you do you ever do anything like that, storing honey or pollen? No, I'm very. What would be the word? Very conservative in the amount of. Honey that I harvest, I always leave quite a bit. And that that came from the practice in Arkansas when I lived in Arkansas. After the first or second week of June, uh, we entered a dearth and there was just nothing. So their summer is maybe as harsh or almost as harsh as winter as far as survival goes. because. Okay. Because it's like winter in that there's no nectar incoming, nothing available. But unlike winter, the temperature is high and the bees are active. And so they're burning a lot of, burning a lot of calor- calories and energy and honey. And so you had to leave them with enough honey or they wouldn't yeah. make it through the summer. 
until the the fall flows, which was usually just like goldenrod and maybe some of the clover would come back. So yeah, that I mean, just as a matter of practice, I haven't really done that or needed to do that. That I was gonna say that almost sounds worse than worse than winter, other than the I guess the the cold, just because you you have so many so many extra bees there that you need to or that they need to support. Yeah, and they've got a they've kind of got to maintain a little they they shut down brood rearing quite a bit but not completely so yeah whereas in in the spring they might have a brood nest the size of I'm trying to think of an object let's just say a total of 20 frames yeah and in the middle of the summer they might have a brood nest the size of somewhere between a like a softball and a soccer ball. Oh wow, that's so oh, fairly small. No kidding. I mean, the hive would still be generally full of bees, but that space is all that they're going to be raising brood in because they just need to kind of maintain the population. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But you're in a you're in a totally different climate. So I would imagine your bees are are going full bore most of your active season. Yeah, and I'm that's that's one of those things I'm trying to try, trying to figure out around here just what what the actual active season is, and it's I, I think for the most part it's um, March, April, uh, probably mid April to September ish, or kind of end of September I think would be when. What's your elevation there? Ooh. Um, just ballpark. Not a clue. Uh, I can figure it out in just a second here. Because I'm in Edmonton. Uh, it says six, uh, 2,200 feet is what it's 2, telling me. 2,200 feet. Okay. What's your, what's your usual low temperatures there in the wintertime? Um, there will be usually a couple days I, I find it will dip around kind of minus – Oh jeez, yeah, because you use Fahrenheit, hey. <laughs> um, I can translate. I'm an engineer. Okay, well, about minus thirty-five to forty is you know there's only usually only a few days like this. Um, minus thirty-five to forty Celsius. Well, handy and, handy tool. Minus forty Celsius and minus forty Fahrenheit are the same. Hey, there you go. So that's that's usually the coldest, and then so that's a bit colder than here, even. Yeah. And then you'll you'll get a couple days that are or a couple weeks worth usually in that minus thirty area. Um, but the last last couple winters have been fairly fairly mild. Like we actually had some uh, above freezing temperatures for in January, which is usually you know you spend most of January kind of minus twenty five area usually. So yeah, that's pretty cold. Yeah, yours is definitely as far as deep winter wise. You have a you have a deeper and more consistent winter. Here we have we do get down to minus twenty, but there are it's usually not more than a couple of weeks before we get a day that's up in the fifties or sixties Fahrenheit, <laughs> which is uh, that's twenty uh, ish. Yeah, fifteen twenty Celsius. Yeah. Hmm. That must be nice. <laughs> it's it's nice on those days. Yeah. But then there's, you know, throughout January and February and maybe even March, 
uh, you get like a, a pretty decent snow every week and then it melts off and then it, you know, it's, it's all, it's back and forth. And then this year we've been having record rainfall where I think right now, I think we're nearly at double where we're supposed to be as really far as, as far as normal rainfall. Well, it's, it's funny. Well, I guess maybe not funny, but, uh, up here right now it's, you know, it's, it's extremely dry and, you know, you know, there's places all over, you know, all around here have, uh, have fire bans going on because there's just, you, you might get a, a millimeter or two of rain a week kind of thing for well, the last month, which is pretty low. Yeah. Where my family is on the West coast and in, in Southern Oregon, they are having a moderate to severe drought right now. And I, I'm looking at the numbers right now. Normal for taping this on June 14th, normal for this time of year is six and a half inches of precipitation. We currently have 11. Hmm. So almost double where we're supposed to be. Yeah. Which is pretty crazy. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> enough about the weather. Yeah. But yeah, so I guess the the whole storing, storing and all that, just because I'm... Well, I guess if you were to store them, would you recommend? Because I, I don't know how if this would be a problem for the the honey or not. Would it be a problem to freeze it? Because I've I haven't really heard about wax moths in around here. But you probably have a reduced probability for for wax moths just because your winter is so long and wax moths don't survive freezing. Yeah, and so if they do appear, they would be later in the season. Yeah. So you could probably store them without too much danger for a while. It'd be good to freeze them if you plan on doing that. But and and as as time goes on and you you are keeping bees for a longer period of time, you'll get a handle on on how this all works and what you need to do at certain times of year. So a yeah. lot of it comes with experience. I can't tell you exactly what to do because oh, I, I don't live it's... there. Well, yeah, and it's it's all local, and it's 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 also really hard for me to get a gauge on it because I've I haven't been to many of the 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 meetings around here, but it seems like everyone everyone that I've come across, anyways, has you know they they all they all feed or they use uh, candy boards, yeah, which. So none of them really plan on leaving leaving much much honey at all for the the hive. So it's yeah, hard to get a gauge on what they actually need. <laughs> that's typical a lot among commercial beekeepers where they're making their money off of the honey because honey is more valuable than sugar, yep, or high fructose corn syrup or whatever they're using, and so it's kind of profitable for them to do that, but. I always recommend backyard beekeepers. You're a different type of beekeeper than a commercial beekeeper, so don't keep bees the way they do. You can keep them in a better way because you're not focused on profit. Yeah, exactly. So you would be, I feel you would be better served to leave them some extra honey, especially the first couple of years when you're learning how to do it. And so when you get to the springtime and you see that, Oh, they have a whole box left. Then going into winter, the next year you can realize, okay, I don't have to give them X number of boxes. I can give them X minus one. Yeah. 
Yeah, so... Yeah, that, that's kind of be my plan for this first year is to, you know, I, I don't really intend on taking any honey. I, I'll, like, if... If I look at it, and it seems to be there's an excessive amount. You know, I, I may take a I may take a frame or something just just for myself. But for the most part, I plan on leaving most or all to them. What are you using? Foundation or foundationless? What are you using? I'm using foundation, okay. which I do intend. Like what I want to try doing is I want to look into switching over to small cell because I, to be honest, I don't even know what I've got, but I'm. I'd be surprised if what they gave me was small. Yeah, it's probably either 5.2 or maybe as high as 5.4. 5.2 is the most common, I think. Yeah. So I, I guess on, on the note of small cell, uh, I know you started with it and that's kind of kind of what you got. But have you heard or do you know if... I were to just start introducing it. Do you know if they change over right away to a small cell or if it's gradual or if they just say, nope, we're, we've been using 5.2, so we're going to keep building 5.2 on top of this? They will They will build on the foundation. If, you, if you've got 4.9 millimeter foundation, they will build on it. Usually the first couple of years, they won't build it perfectly. They might build... They'll, what'll happen is they'll build patches that are pretty close, but because they're not quite as they get to the edges of those patches, you know, the, you can kind of imagine if you build the comb on that base, but it, it's slightly larger. So it kind of flares out. Yeah. And then when they get to the edge of that flare, they start to build transition cells that are like either triangular or have the wrong number of sides or whatever. And they're trying to, they're trying to match it back up to get it straightened again. And so it'll take some time. And, you know, I went through quite a bit of that in the early years and basically you just go with it. Just keep giving them when, whenever you make new boxes or new foundation or, or replace frames or whatever, just keep giving them small cell and eventually uh, they'll get better and better and better until now I can usually get most of the frames drawn fairly correctly. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it'll never be absolutely perfect. I mean, well, it's, perfect doesn't exist really. No, no, exactly. You almost got to wonder when it is perfect if there's something else up. <laughs> the foundation's really there so that they will build the comb straight in the frame so that you can manipulate the frames. That's really what the foundation is there for. Yeah, yeah, because I've, I've heard somewhere that if, uh, yeah, if you don't go with any kind of foundation, then it, it tends to tends to curve towards towards the middle, usually. Yeah, it'll curve in some direction. They'll, I mean, if you look at free, totally free-flow comb, uh, the, there's some nice straight stuff that's it's just kind of an arc. Um, but a lot of times when you get further down, you'll start having combs join and diverge, you know, join at different angles. And so you'll get really, you'll get really interesting designs. If, um, like as one example I can think of when I went to Michael Bush's place and he had left an empty box on top of a hive and then a, uh, the bees built into it and then the hive died. And so you're left with this box full of empty 
honeycomb and it's just, you know, these nifty little uh, whorls and curves and French curves or whatever you want to – it's interesting. So they're, they're, building it straight is not their natural way of doing it. They normally want to build it – Kind of balled up. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. So I, I understand what a – again, kind of switching subject a bit is uh, I guess what, what a flow is. But other than just kind of getting a feel, is there any way that you can tell as to when a flow is or how heavy it's going to be? Because I've got no idea. <laughs> well, as time goes on, you will you will learn – um, when your flows are and what what things are blooming, just by observation, you'll you'll get a feeling. But if you're unfamiliar, you can do one of the, one of the old beekeeper tricks is to pull out a frame that you can see is being filled with nectar and kind of jar it a little, you know, shake it a little over the hive. And if a bunch of nectar comes, you know, just dripping out, then you know that there's a flow on. Right, and you can you can gauge the amount of flow that you're getting by how many frames or how many portions of frames are full of unripened nectar. So if you go into the hive and there's only capped honey or almost only capped honey, you can be pretty sure that there's not a flow going on. But when you go into a hive and see you've got comb that has nectar in it that's not capped and especially that's really runny, that's really watery, you know yeah. that there's a flow going on right then. Okay. Yeah, okay, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Um, all right, and then I guess switch, switching it up again, uh, foul brood. I, I, I never really hear you touch on it, and I feel like it's probably because it's it's not as big of a deal – or not as common as what you hear about. Like you always hear about you should treat for this and it's just it seems like one of the, the big things that everyone worries about, but I never actually read too much about people actually getting it. And I would also assume for for yourself being treatment oh, okay, yeah, I'm kinda bouncing all over and rambling, but uh You're fine. Is there is there anything that you would do about it or have done about it? Now, I'm guessing being treatment-free, probably nothing, but yeah, if that makes sense. <laughs> well, foul brood has become generally less common because it's a naturally very virulent disease. And so when a hive gets it, uh, at least in the past, it would it would kill the hive pretty quickly and then other bees would come rob that hive and they would get it. And so any hive that was susceptible to it would be killed off by it pretty quickly. Now that being said, we do kind of have an issue in um, the commercial beekeeping population because a lot of times to keep from having to deal with that, they will treat with antibiotics prophylactically. And so... Yeah. So what you'll have is, and Michael Bush talks about this a lot, is, is that when you kill off the bacteria in the hive, 
you're you're trying to kill off the American foul brood bacteria, but you're also getting like the chalk brood bacteria. And it turns out that the chalk brood bacteria compete directly with the foul brood bacteria. So when you kill off the chalk brood bacteria, um, because of whatever mechanism, maybe it's uh, American foul brood spores or whatever, um, the American foul brood will come back much easier in one of those hives. Now, I am, like you said, I'm treatment-free. I'm of the view that um, if a hive gets a disease like that and can't survive it and fix it, it ought to be destroyed in some way. Yeah. So um, the the typical solution is burning the hive that is a tried and true solution. It, it, it eliminates the spores. It eliminates the diseased bees. It eliminates the genetics for bees that can become diseased. Um, an interesting, one of my favorite studies to quote is, was done by Marla Spivak or Spivak or however you pronounce her name. Uh, a few years ago, she did a, a test of hygienic bees where she introduced pieces of comb into each group of bees into the in the into the hives of each group of bees, and uh, she had one group was hygienic, one group was non-hygienic. The non-hygienic bees like immediately got the disease, and most of them died from it, like all but a couple, I think, or maybe all of them did. Yeah. Meanwhile, the hygienic bees, um, most of them developed an infection but cleared it up, and some of them didn't even de- even develop an infection at all they just cleared it up and and was done with it yeah so that so in a perfect world a world that's not soaked in antibiotics these sorts of diseases eventually take care of themselves and even yeah. though they're virulent and bad and can cause a lot of damage um in in non-resistant and non-hygienic populations there are other options for a beginning beekeeper, um, if you do find foul brood in your hives, probably the best option is to just destroy them. Or at destroy least, them, start over. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's it seems wasteful, and in a way it is, but it's really productive ultimately because you're eliminating non-resistant stock and and susceptible genetics yeah yeah fair enough no i i think what i would you know since i'm i'm gonna i'm trying to go this treatment free route is i i'd probably you know let them try and deal with it and you know if they died well then yeah totally totally wipe the books but if they they're able to survive it then then great at least i would think and as as things naturally go on to be treatment free, your bees will will have a natural level of hygienic behavior and hygienic activity, and so, like in in my twelve years of beekeeping, I haven't had an infection of American foul brood, and according to the study, I probably won't because my my bees are hygienic; they take care of of mites on their own, and so as a as a beneficial side effect of that they would also take care of american foul brood on their own to the point where i might not ever find a substantial infection 
Yeah, you, like you, you might have had it, you just never knew because you've got bees that were already uh, adept at dealing with it kind of thing. Right, they took care of it. Yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, that's basically all I had about foul brood. I guess moving on to some kind of winter stuff. And now I, I, I realize that a lot of this you wouldn't necessarily have experience with yourself. But, uh, well, actually, the... Because you're in the Denver area right now? Yes. And that's cold for the states, I think, isn't it? It is pretty cold because I'm up at I'm up at a at five thousand feet in elevation. You know, I don't know what that is in meters. Um, <laughs> offhand. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I I think it's I think it's about three to one. Yeah. Anyway, um, so it does get it does get pretty cold here. Like I said, down to minus twenty, and and that's just here in the Denver metro area. My bees are actually up in the Hudson area, which is up further away from the mountains. So you have much more significant winds, quite a bit more wind chill. So, I mean, I, I can't, the closest I come to being Canadian is my, my grade school teacher was Canadian. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> I've never been to Canada. No, I've never been in a place like, uh, either Southern Canada or Vermont or, or one of those places where you have substantial snowfall and substantial periods of time far below freezing or, you know, very cold temperatures for long periods of time. I haven't experienced that. But that being said, the cure to all of that is to have a lot of honey on the hives. Well, exactly. And if you are going to feed in winter in deep winter, the only way to feed that that is effective is using what's called the mountain camp method. You familiar with that? No, I've never heard of that one. Uh, there, there's several names. It was it was named after I think a guy on B Source who had the the ID name of of mountain camp. And basically, the idea is you have an empty box on the top of the hive, and you put like either a single layer of newspaper or a single layer of paper towels down yep. and then you fill that box or you don't have to fill it necessarily, but you can pile some, some honey in there so that when the bees have, have through the, through the process of consuming the honey, moving up through the hive, they've consumed all the honey. When they get to the top, they will be left with that sugar. And the really good thing in my mind about the sugar, number one, there's no robbing, there's no, um, there's no fermentation. It's just sugar. But the the best part about it, in my view, is when they get up there, they it's a last resort. They will yeah. they will use almost all the honey before they will ever touch the sugar, and so you're not feeding them prophylactically either. You're yeah. they'll they'll only take what they need, and then in the springtime when they're done, if they have sugar left over just hauled out as garbage though well by that time it should be pretty well solidified and chunky and so um they they can't really haul it out but you can you just open the top of the hive you take off that chunk of honey stick it in a bucket and save it for next year yeah fair enough hmm. okay um let's see would you 
I, I guess, what do you think about in, insulation or just uh, storing them in? Because what I was I was considering doing was uh, storing them inside a building that was still outside, just so it would kind of protect from the uh, the wind chill factor. But I, I wasn't sure if that was an issue for when they wanted to, I guess, fly out during the winter, I guess on the warm days kind of thing. It depends on how you do it. If you have, if you have a building with like a barn or something with a big open door that you can open. And so they have access to outside when they need to. Yeah. That would be good. Um, a lot of people up in, up in your area will use like a tar paper wrap or some sort of um, like blanket wrap of some sort. Um, and, and then another method that I've heard, which is probably beyond the scope of, of what you're capable of, is actually storing the hive in a refrigerated warehouse. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> so what, what the idea behind that is you put the bees in a, in a cold and dark place, like say 40 degrees or below or below, or yep. lower so that the they won't be interested in coming out of the hive they'll be they'll be in deep winter but they'll be warm enough so they won't be burning a whole lot of honey to survive uh and and then you can control your seasons essentially so yeah. when when you're ready to bring them back out when everything is starting to warm up again in the spring you bring them back out and they're ready to go so you kind of keep them in a controlled manner that way, but that's yeah, that's beyond your scope. Yeah, no, and I that that almost seems kind of like a, a a treatment like they don't have to put up with a a proper winter kind of thing like that, right? So how much how much snow do you generally have on the ground throughout the winter? Um, not too much, at least or at least not in my opinion. Maybe uh two three feet kind of thing okay in uh in vermont or the the northeast and places like that where they get lake effect snow especially yeah uh, they'll have i mean they'll have snow piled up over the top of the hives and that actually acts as a good insulator because the snow there's no wind chill down there it's you know it's a constant temperature most of the time the bees can't get in or out um, and in 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 effect, it's like being in that warehouse, only it's just yeah. snow. Well, and it's it's a uh, it's a different kind of snow too. I think uh, I, I've never been out there, but I think it's it's a uh, a wetter snow, whereas ours is a little a little fluffier than than that too. So it probably isn't it doesn't have the same insulating effect. I wouldn't think. Well, fluffier snow is actually more insulating because there's more air. Yeah, air is the insulating fat part of it well and and then i guess if it's if it's wetter too that would would tend to sap away the heat a little bit more yeah. readily than, than the other but i i would also okay so i was hearing something a little silly about uh or well i guess hearing i was reading about where you know guys would store them in those temperature controlled or store them in a cold garage kind of thing where it didn't get too warm but it still stayed cool where they would the bees would need to do their cleansing flights but these people would essentially take their bees out and like walk them 
like you know take the moat on a warm well at least that's how i've looked at it they take the moat and oh, it makes sense on a warm day and let them do their thing and bring them back in so that sounds like a lot of work well exactly so um probably if they're going to be have a lot of snow stacked up around them you probably want to have a small upper entrance yeah not sure how you want to approach that. It might just be that your top box has like a, a half inch hole drilled in it somewhere or your, however you have your lid set up a lot of, um, a lot of inner covers. If you have a, an inner cover and a telescoping cover, a lot of inner covers have a little slot that, yeah. that serves as an upper entrance. Yep. Mine, uh, the, yeah, the one I've originally got, it's got that. I'm, I'm waiting to get a new, a new inner cover for the, the those, the full hive that I had bought. In. But so it, it's actually funny what I did with. Uh, I'll, I'll keep it to the wintering for a second, then go back to this other bit. But would you recommend for the uh, for their winter ventilation? Would you, I guess. Keeping the bottom and top open, or keeping just a top open, or just one or the other, like because I've I've heard if you don't have a top top entrance or some kind of top ventilation, then you'll get a lot of moisture that builds up, and then it'll get you know rather cold drip down on the bees and end up killing a lot of bees that way. The upper entrance is probably more important in that sense. Um. The, the the condensation and dripping on the bees is mostly only a problem if you have a not very insulated top. If your top is more insulated than your sides, you know, your sides are typically just three-quarter inch thick lumber. Yeah. If your top is more is less insulated than your sides, like if you were just using a telescoping lid with no inner lid, um, inner inner... Inner covers, I think, probably contribute to that more because they have um, they tend to bow down in the middle, and so that is the perfect place for condensation to form and drip right down the center of the hive, right onto the bees. Um, but if you have a well insulated top, then most of your condensation is going to exist around the rim of the top and will drip down the sides rather than down the middle on the bees, and that's fine. I mean, it's oh. going to rot your boxes a little faster, but that's preferable. Yeah. Um, you can also use, like Watch I was thinking, two. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about using like a, a piece of foam board insulation as a lid in the wintertime just to make sure that that top was fully insulated because it's not really, you're not really keeping heat into the hive with the amount of airflow and the amount, the size of the cluster the bees really only heat the cluster, not the whole hive. So yeah, by insulating the hive, you are number one, present preventing uh, condensation and you are kind of protecting against wind chill more than keeping the hive warm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I wouldn't, I, I would imagine the, the wind chill would probably be, be the bigger factor there than trying to worry about keeping it warm when it's you know however cold so, uh, so and i guess yeah so on on to the note of 
the inner cover there uh, with with an upper entrance. I have actually got my inner cover flipped because you can flip it one of two ways so that you can either use that entrance or not. I I had tried using it initially to because I, I can't remember if it was something of yours or somewhere else I'd heard that bees will prefer an upper entrance for one reason or another. I can't remember why. But so I, I remember setting it so that there was an upper entrance initially. Well, actually, there still is. And they seem to love the, the upper entrance a lot. But then now I never see any of them going in or out of that. They're all using the bottom instead. It varies. It's It's not a they'll really just take what they can get. Yeah. And in the wintertime, I mean, in the wintertime, if you get that much snow, the snow's going to be piled around the base of the hive anyway, so by default, you're going to have an upper entrance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's kind of all I've got for for winter stuff. Let's see. So I was I had initially been considering uh, I think when I first emailed you a few weeks or a month or whatever it was ago about I was going to be buying a queen to requeen my first hive because the the bees that I got initially are from New Zealand so not at all um so anyway, so the question I had was just about transporting a queen because I was going to try and requeen it with a local one. Is for if you're transporting just a queen, or do you need to take any special considerations into mind? Like, um, do you need to try and maintain a, a certain temperature, or do any, do any you know provide any kind of food or anything like that when you're transporting just a queen? You want to make sure that you keep them warm enough. And having a source of of water is always good, like a wet paper towel or a sponge, and some some bees in the cage with a queen is always a good idea as well. Yeah, and maybe a drop of honey every once in a while. Yeah, well, because I, I wouldn't imagine that transporting would be more than maybe an hour would be my guess, but. No, if you if you're transporting them of that sort of distance, I mean, usually if it's not too cold, just stick in the cage in your shirt pocket. Is yeah, fine or somewhere where they. The most important thing with bees is getting enough air because insects use a lot of oxygen and they can suffocate fairly easily. But usually a queen a, a queen cage isn't that big a deal on that front. Oh, okay. But, you know, keep them in, in a reasonable temperature. If it's just an hour, it's probably going to be fine. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, that's that's good to good to know. Um, let's see. And then I guess on, on the subject of transporting around, how do you usually transport your bees? Do you do up all or do you cover up all the entrances or do you move them in uh, like a, a closed truck or... When I've had to transport my bees, what I will do is I have some hives that have that the lower entrance, uh, the bottom box is like a 10 frame nuke. So yep. the, the bottom is attached and there's a, an inch and a half 
hole in the front that is covered by a metal disc entrance, and that disc entrance can be rotated. You can see pictures of this on my website. There's plenty of pictures of it. That disc entrance can be rotated so that this the that entrance is covered over with a screen, so holes that the bees can't get out of. And then my other hives have fairly common style slot entrances, and what I've done with those is get a piece of... You can't use window screen because it's a little too flimsy. But get a piece of like gutter screen or mesh, something that's a little more substantial. Cut it to the right length, then fold it in half into a V shape. And then stick that V shape into the entrance so that it completely blocks off the entrance. And that, that works really well because there's still plenty of ventilation. Um and it stays because it's it's some more substantial screen it's 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 metal i mean it's not yeah. just um like window screen a lot of time is um fiberglass so it's you yeah. know it's it's flimsy um and then i duct tape corners and stuff that are broken off and holes and things yeah okay and in the when i move nukes all of my nukes are five frame nukes with a with that same hole in the front with a disc entrance. Those disc entrances are really awesome. You can get them from um, Walter Kelly. I don't know. Do you have access to mailing stuff from the U.S.? Um, a lot of things. Uh, sometimes I, you know, a lot, lot, lots of times I'd rather just try and figure out another option just because shipping. Yeah. Sh- shipping can sometimes be quite reasonable, like just a few bucks, but then other times. It's you know hey, you're paying just as much for the item or you know it's it's ridiculous. <laughs> I just ordered a, a part for my motorcycle from the UK, so I'm familiar Ooh. with that. Jeez, that that sounds like a terrible idea. <laughs> well, you've got to you've got to go where they are. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the only way to look at it. Yeah, I guess so. That's oh jeez, that'd be. I can imagine that was expensive because I'm sure whatever it was wasn't super light either. No, it was – I got to say the shipping was something like $45 for – for. I mean here I have Amazon Prime. So pretty much anything I order I, I get for free shipping in two days, which is really nice. Yeah. Uh, so having to ship something from from 5,000 miles away is – and, Not and have to pay fun. for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's fair enough. But yeah, and all I should look, look into look into getting those because I've the the entrances on the nukes that I've got are they're just the same as a full hive kind of thing. Like it's a full bottom board type of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've done with that is I've kind of minimize the the entrance to it with a a makeshift little i guess robbing screen <laughs> okay um but oh yeah yeah so anyways um on on that note of of robbing like do you do anything to stop or prevent robbing or do you just kind of say you're on your own robbing is really hard to stop so the I have at times made little robber screens so that most of the robbers would be 
rebuffed or whatever the right word is, um, rejected because a robber is following a scent to get into the hive. Whereas the bees that are in the hive, they are, are landing based on a visual cue. So they will remember where approximately in space that entrance is. Whereas the robbers are just sniffing around trying to find a place to get in. Yeah, and then they'll they'll end up hitting the screen or whatever it is you've gotten in place, and end up getting tired of it and going elsewhere. Right. So on my uh, on my queen castles, the way I designed them, the entrance is either just a tiny little like three eighths inch hole drilled in the side of the box, or a little slot cut in the bottom edge of the box, and it's really there's no identifying marking that would tell you where that entrance is. But in the back of the box, there's a an inch and a half wide hole that's drilled, and then that's screened over. So any robbers that are coming to attack, which would be very hard for that small a hive to to repel, they're most of the time going to end up at that robber screen. And the bees in the nuke won't even have to defend against it because there's there's nothing to deal with. Now, in, in other cases where there's major robbing, this happened to me in Arkansas when I decided to do an inspection in the middle of the summer during the dearth. And that was, I discovered that was a total mistake. <laughs> I actually took a video. You can find that on my YouTube channel. My YouTube name is Wired for Stereo. And you okay. can find um, this video where, where I, it's just, I mean, there's just bees just attacking every little nook and cranny on this hive trying to get in there's bees just cascading off falling off just really going at it and there was no way that i could stop something like that that is even if you shut up the hive completely the hive is still full of robber bees and there's going to be fighting going on it's just going to be a huge mess plus it's really hot outside and they need access to water and so shutting up the hive really isn't an option. So what I did is basically I just let it go until it was done. This was a pretty strong hive too. So I let it go until I, until it was done. There was no more honey at all left in the hive. Um, all the, a lot of the, um, the young brood was also gone. Uh, there was just a, a, a small cluster of bees left that weren't dead with the queen. And so after it was all done, the robbers, I mean, you can see that the attack is over. The robbers know that there's nothing left and everybody's gone. And what I did is I reduced the entrance down to just big enough for one or two bees to get through. And then I gave them another frame of honey from another hive so that they wouldn't freeze or not freeze, starve. Yeah. And so they really had to really work hard to come back from that because they had been robbed so thoroughly and completely. Jeez. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a last-ditch thing. If that happens when you're not around, like right now, I don't get to be around my bees that much. They're not in my backyard anymore. I only get to see them every, every week or every other week or so. So that happens during the week. Chances are that hive's going to be dead by the next time I get to them. So that's, that's just life. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, because what, what happened when I brought... 
it, the reason I had kind of marked that down as a question was because when I had brought that uh, that new hive in, so it was a, a full booming hive ready to go where you could, you know, yeah, it was full on going. And then I had this package that I just got started, you know, a week or two before. All of a sudden, there's a lot of activity there at the start. So I was like, okay, geez, I wonder if this is robbing or, you know, I'm, I'm not even sure. So I, I got a screen, put it over that, and I think I confused a bunch of foraging bees returning that day. And I kind of kind of realized that I probably should have put it on in the evening. <laughs> um, but so I, I put it on, and then the next day I found there was a whole whole lot of bees, you know, fa- fairly early on that were landing on the screen, and then it it seemed like there was a lot of bees that kind of figured out and knew exactly where to go with a little cutout that I had made in the screen. So. It was a it was a very makeshift thing, but I I think I stopped it, assuming it was actually a thing. Yeah, and that's a really sensitive situation when you when you install a package like that because they're in a new box, they don't know where they are, this isn't their home yet, they don't have their scent all over it. So, yeah, you got to be careful with that. Yeah. Um. Let's see. So the next thing I've got, I guess, uh, you know, along the lines of, uh, of scent, do you use, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you do. I'm is uh, a smoker much. I do use a smoker. Well, technically when I go out, I light the smoker. I use it if necessary. Yeah. So it's usually just sitting there on the ground or on top of a hive somewhere. Um, so if I do need it, if the bees decide they're not happy that day or it's a, a hive that's not particularly nice, then it's just there. It's ready to go. Um, but generally the smoke, um, disorients a lot of, you know, it it interferes with, with a lot of the smell communication in the hive, which is good. If you're, if you're robbing the hive, it, it calms them down, disorients them. So they're not unified in an attack or anything. But if you can, if you have nice bees and you can get away with not using smoke, it's better not to. That way, you yeah. don't you don't uh, disorient things too much. Okay, yeah, it may have been one of your podcasts I'd heard it from, or somewhere, or maybe it was when I took a I took a beginning beekeeping course back in kind of early spring, and that's what the the guy had said and i i hadn't seen it really anywhere else when i was doing my research is just that yeah like you said it 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 interrupts all their all the communication that they're doing and it kind of slows down whatever they're in the process of doing and everyone says it calms them but it's just kind of the illusion of calm is kind of how i understand it in a sense yeah and i'm a big fan of of not doing anything arbitrarily so if I'm if I'm going to do something, there should be a reason. I shouldn't just do it as a matter of practice. Yeah. So that's that's part of that philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's fair enough. I because I've I've been you know I've, I've used it a bit, and I think it's just because I'm new and a bit nervous. But what I've been trying to do is just smoke smoke myself so that they understand what what my scent is perhaps I'm I don't know if that makes sense or if it's just me just spraying smoke on myself but it's 
in a sense, it's kind of like when you spray yourself with bug spray, what you're really doing, you're not repelling bugs or anything. What you're really doing is you're making yourself invisible to them. Yeah. So it's kind of a similar situation. And if you do get stung, it's really a good idea to, once you get the stinger out, to smoke that area so that yeah. uh, new bees, other bees that are interested in stinging you will not be repeat offenders. Yeah. Well, and that's that's actually what I've done is, you know, a couple I don't know how often, you know, it happens to to everyone else. I've I, I've noticed I've gotten better throughout my inspections, but just when I accidentally squish squish a bee kind of thing is I'll smoke around there because when when they get squished, I I think they emit a a pheromone that makes the yes. rest of them upset. Yes, alarm pheromone. It smells. I I I say it smells like laugh like yeah, uh, banana laffy taffy. It's it's a it's a very distinct smell, especially when you when you've got a whole hive that's really angry and you can smell it just wafting out of the hive. And you know it's it's kind of a trigger smell for me. And there's there's a there's a perfume or a smell or something that that I've smelled on women occasionally and it just like triggers me it's like oh my gosh what's that oh it's just perfume <laughs> that's funny I had, but yeah so i mean that's yeah, had that's this friend back in something. arkansas who always smelled like that it was it was weird i wonder you know uh, i'm sure there's sure there's a few distinct differences but i wonder what would happen if you know you had a friend that smelled a lot like that and they went to go work with the bees if if it was similar enough to them that they would get upset or you know, I don't I'm know. not, I'm not sure that it would because just like, just because it smells like something doesn't mean that the chemical makeup of yeah. the scent yeah, is the sense. same. Like for instance, um, like the Nazanov pheromone, uh, the, the, the location pheromone actually smells like lemon pledge, the smell in lemon pledge and, and, Lemon, lemon oils is a chemical called citrol. Now, the chemical citrol is in the location pheromone, but it's at a different proportion than it is in, like, uh, lemongrass oil. Okay. So, for us, being animals that have a relatively not well-developed sense of smell, it smells the same to us it probably wouldn't smell the same to them. You know, it's, it's like a, a dog smelling. It, you know, has a much more well-developed sense of smell than we do, can smell things with much greater detail than we can. Yeah, well, and they're, that, you know, I'm, sure, I'm sure you're right, and there, there's probably sense in there that they're picking up on that we've got no idea. Or like, we've, we're, we're not picking up anything on them kind of thing. Exactly. Um. So let's see. So my next bit here is, I guess, a uh, sue procedure. Uh, do you know when it's likely to, or I guess, yeah, most likely to happen? Or um, and it's basically just a, a weak queen kind of deal. Or does it happen at other times? It's generally a weak queen type of deal. It can be done, uh, commonly done by packages to the queen provided with the package and. That may be a function of kind of a mismatched proportion of brood in the hive. 
yeah. or it may be the fact that there's not enough brood in the hive for the time of the year. And so it may not be the queen's fault in that case. They would just, I mean, it just may, may be a, an automatic trigger that they do it. And it's because the hive is kind of in an odd place. Now, as far as established hives superseding, I've seen them mostly supersede kind of in the downtime in the summer. Um, it, it It's not something that's really easy to predict. It's, it's a bee thing. It's something, I mean, we just go along with it, really. Yeah. And I, I guess how do they... Do you, do you know how they deal with it? Because that, that's always something I've wondered. Because you, you, you know how when you get all the swarm cells, you know you get the first queen that's out. She'll go and try and kill all the others so that they don't kill her, kind of thing. It almost seems kind of weird that a supersedure cell would be accepted by the current queen because you'd almost think that she might have that instinct as to know. I want to survive, so I'm going to go kill the supersedure cell. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I'm not entirely sure how that works. It just does. <laughs> there's, there's probably some sort of mechanism that overrides that, because virgins are the one that typically are the fighters. Yeah. Um, once a queen has been mated and begun laying, her abdomen gets much larger and at that point, she's not really all that capable of stinging anymore. So even if she did try to get after that, she probably would lose or, or yeah. might, might lose. At any rate, she's, she's not as equipped to do the job as she was when she was a newborn. Yeah. Hmm. Would, I, I guess, would you say that there are more... More likely after um, a walkaway split kind of scenario, um, just because, or, or you know, anything like that where the queen dies unexpectedly and they're they're raising themselves a last minute queen. Because I would imagine, imagine that you know maybe sometimes it works out, but I would imagine a lot of times that uh, that queen might have gone like it, it won't be as nourished as if they had been originally planning a queen so that they're more likely more likely to supersede the emergency queen kind of thing that there's been a lot of speculation about that and and I think there's some validity to that idea um so a supersedure an emergency queen might be more rapidly replaced by a supersedure queen you know, after they've got, okay, we, we have a queen now, she's laying eggs, she's not top quality, but we can replace her with less danger than it would have been if we were replacing an emergency queen. So it's like a, an interim queen maybe. Yeah. And that's, that's a, a little bit of speculation. I can't, I can't say exactly how that works because I don't think anybody really knows, but I have heard, um, from experienced beekeepers, and seen myself like um, a queen that might be skinny or thin might be replaced. You know, an emergency queen might be replaced and a month or two later might be superseded. Yeah. So I, I do believe that happens. Yeah. Well, it, it would make sense just because, yeah, just like you said there, because they're, they're smaller, you know, whatever it is. Um, where was I? Uh, 
Um, sorry, I'm just trying to figure out where I was in my little notes here. I'm getting towards the end of them. <laughs> All right. Um, I guess for because I mean for for myself, I've got a bunch of new frames. Is there anything that you would you do, or you just kind of let it be? Uh, but to encourage them to draw a new comb because. It, you know everything you read about talking about you know you're you're making a new a new uh a new split and just getting everything ready it all everything talks about using drawn comb no, not nothing ever says oh no just leave them leave them be and i or yeah i guess the long and short of that is uh is there anything you do or can do to encourage them to draw a new comb to draw a new comb you really need a flow they need to have they need the need to put something somewhere. Oh, okay. They're, they're not going to draw a comb just to draw a comb. They don't do things ahead of time. There's no forethought there. Yeah. So to draw a comb, they need to be on a flow. If you don't have a flow, uh, especially with packages, feeding is done. Um, that being said, feeding can be... Uh, a little iffy because you it's it's you're susceptible to robbing. But if you have a flow going on, they should build comb fairly well. Um, I like to when they're pretty well established. I, I like to put one frame in the middle of the brood nest because that's typically where they'll draw the best comb. Yeah. Um, but you can't you can't really force them. They need. And you can't really encourage them to do it if they don't need to do it. They have to need to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. So, okay. And, okay, let's see. So for, I guess, on to my next thing is grafting. It, when you're doing that, so my understanding is you wait, wait, wait for them to lay, like you grab a fairly fresh larva and put it into a queen cup and then do your uh your queen excluder thing i this is terribly vague but uh like when you're handling the larva how do you manipulate them or i'd be i'd be worried about them being really fragile or if you are moving them into the cup and you maybe scratch one like if that translates into to damage once once they hatch and the good thing, and for those of you listening, this is addressed a lot more thoroughly one or two episodes ago. At this point, they haven't been published, but they will be soon. Um, but for for you, um, the good thing about grafting is that if you smash a larva, there's a lot more of them. Yeah. So you can always try again. Yeah. You get, you get a lot of practice. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of a learning curve, and you'll you'll mess up a few here and there. But they are resources wise, they're pretty cheap, and um, you get a lot of practice. And if it doesn't work, you just do it again. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. So, and I guess here's another. Another things because I don't because I, I live out you know fifteen twenty minutes away from town so it's kind of country ish where I am and I don't know everyone I don't know if there's any other bees in my area or I I don't know what the 
what it's like other than in my backyard here. But is it a problem for drones from like if I had just one hive, is it a problem for the drones that are from that hive to mate with like a new queen that's from that hive? Not usually. When you have a small number of hives, usually the drones that your queen or queens are mating with are going to be from somewhere else. She's going to fly out and look for DCAs or drone congregation areas or whatever that stands for. Um, and those drones are going to be from all over the place. And even, in fact, the drones that are in your hive are not necessarily from your hive. So oh. when you have that small number of hives, unless you have the only hive around, which is pretty rare. Yeah. Well, I imagine it would be, but I just, I've got no idea. Yeah. You're going to be picking up drones from all over the place, you know, yeah. within, within a couple of miles. Okay. So it, it's typically not, not a, not an issue. Yeah. Where you see. Where you see inbreeding problems is is in commercial operations where they're breeding and they control all the bees in a certain area. And so and, – and what they're doing is every year they're replacing a lot of their queens. So a lot of their queens are descended from a very small gene pool from just a handful yeah. of queens. And that's when you can really get into trouble. But it, it still takes a couple of years. Oh, okay. And can you, well, not not that I necessarily expect this issue, but is there, what, what can you really tell from if if there is inbreeding? And I, I guess I don't even know what you would do about it other than try and buy something from further away. It's typically you'll be able to see it or an indication of it. You can't exactly prove it, but an indication of it is a spotty brood pattern is often to be considered an indication of inbreeding. Um, hives that are, are lackluster, that don't have a, that aren't really strong. Um, and, and usually in general practice, you'll, you'll replace those queens or uh, merge those hives with other hives. So unless it's a systemic problem, it's usually resolved by default eventually. Yeah. Okay. And then, let's see, I think that's... Okay, so I'm, here, here's the last bit of uh, notes that I've got anyways. is So I don't really expect to hit this limit myself, but just out of curiosity, is there a maximum number of, uh, of hives that you can have in one location? Like in terms of what the bees will accept, not in terms of local laws or anything like that for, for one location? It really depends on your location. There are um, there are places I've heard of up in maybe the Dakotas where they do a lot of um, of um, clover honey. Where I mean, there's just clover everywhere, and you can have pretty dense uh, apiaries. Now, in the past, if you, if you look at the old books from the late 1800s, early 1900s, they used to keep you know, upwards of 40 hives in one location. I don't think you can do that quite as much anymore. Where I was in Arkansas, I could pretty consistently, without too many problems, keep eight hives in one location. 
Oh, okay. It, what, what what kind of problems would you start to see if you were try to keep more excessive usually? excessive robbing? Yeah. Okay. That, well, of course that makes sense. Yeah. When there's when there's not enough honey around, I mean, bees don't care where it's coming from. They're just they're just getting it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense then. So let's see. I think that. That pretty much wraps it up for all the all the notes and the things that I had. I don't know if you have any questions about the you know the little bit of knowledge I might have. <laughs> no, I think I I think you have. I think you're on a good path. I think you're you're asking the right questions. This is a this is a great show for for freshman beekeepers to learn some of the the basics. A lot of the basics, and even in a little bit into the more advanced stuff. So it's really good, education-wise. I think you're on you're on the right track. You're asking the right questions. You're doing the right things. Um, I I hope you're successful. I think you're you're well on your way. Yeah, I well, I I really hope to be as well because I I'd, I'd like to do do that whole bit where I can I can maybe as little as it would be, maybe start supplying a, a few treatment-free bees into the area because I haven't heard of any. So, Yeah, they are. Well, they're fairly rare all over, but I think they're maybe even a little more rare in Canada. I mean, keeping bees, the further north you go, keeping bees is more difficult. So yeah, you do have some, you do have a climb ahead of you. Yeah. Uh, well, and the... One of the instructors that I tried emailing and asked, I said, "Hey, do you know do you know anyone that does treatment free that I can maybe talk to and maybe I see if they'd mentor me or anything?" He's like, "No, no, you know, anyone that does treatment free always ends up buying bees from the treatment guys." And I'm like, "Okay, well, thanks for the help." <laughs> so there is, if you check out, uh, I have a map on my website at parkerfarms.biz/map.html. I think there's a link on the front page you can get to it. But there I have a I have a map of treatment free bees and supplies suppliers and I think there's one in there is one in Canada but I don't think they're close oh, to you. I'm looking at that right now and yeah they're they're way on the the east coast there. Yeah. And I'm kind of in the prairies on the west. Yeah. Sorry so. about that. No, no, it's it's all good. So maybe if I can if I can get a few, maybe I'll throw in a little marker in my area. <laughs> Great. So let's see. You're in Edmonton. Yep. I sold some wax up to somebody up in that area. I think. Don't that recall. Seems, that was last year. Year before. Seems bizarre. Yeah, up in the prairies up there, plains or whatever. <laughs> well, Craig, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and asking a lot of great questions. Yeah, well, thanks thanks for having me and answering them. Yeah, I look forward to, to having you back again maybe next year and we'll talk about it some more, see where you got to. Yeah, no, it sounds good. I'd, I'd love to. <laughs> thanks. All right. Uh, let's close this thing down. Um, for those of you that, that want to support the podcast, I do have a Patreon account where you can donate based on 
the episodes or even a maximum monthly donation. The more you donate, the more episodes I will produce. So that's a good incentive. Um, and it can be as little as just a dollar an episode. It's really reasonable. Um, I also have a new forum at forum.tfbs, spelled out, .net. Great new forum. Of course, we still have the treatment-free beekeeping, treatment-free beekeepers Facebook page. Check that out. Uh, and I mentioned my website earlier, parkerfarms.biz. If you want to talk to me, if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, I always need new guests. You can email me at solomon at parkerfarms.biz. Thanks for listening. Uh, come back again next time. Have fun keeping bees, because if you're not having fun, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Thank you.